All right. We're finishing the 38th chapter of the book of Job today. This is the first chapter in which Job gets his his request to, Oh, bring me before the throne of God so I can just, you know, fill my mouth, mouth with arguments and tell God just how how bad he's running the show. That's Job's, Job's request. And so he's now, after hearing from God's two witnesses in type and shadow, and that is Elihu, who is not uh, reprimanded like the other three men are, but who speaks the truth and tells Job that he, his self-righteousness is the problem. Uh, let's, uh, let's get into our study today. God has already been talking to Job for 35 verses, and we're going to do the last five verses today. And uh, I've taken the title out of one of the verses here, Who Has Given Understanding to the Heart? Let's read these verses and then we'll get into our study. Who has put wisdom in the uh, inward parts, or who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds in wisdom, or who can stay the bottles of heaven? When the dust grows into hardness, and the clods cleave fast together. Will you uh, hunt the prey for the alive? Will you, or fill the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens and abide in the covert to lie in wait? Who provides for the raven his food? When his young ones cry unto God, they wonder for lack of meat. <clears throat> Just a few more impossible to answer questions for Job, but uh, Job is us. Job is us when we are aloof from God and we think that we are sufficient unto ourselves. And God loves us. We're his children. We're his creation. He made us as we are, aloof from him. And did it for the very purpose of humbling us and bringing us to really appreciate <clears throat> who he is and what he has given to us. That's what life is all about. It brings us to the point of having to cry out to him. Now, to this point, God has made uh, his sovereignty over wickedness uh just he just given it mention. He has it's not been a big point that he's made, but he has alluded to it in verses seventeen through nineteen of the same chapter here. He said, "Have the gates of uh, death been opened to you, or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare it if you know it all. Where is the way where light dwells? As for darkness, where is the place thereof?" Now, the, the very fact that God's mentioning light and darkness in the same breath, asking Job, where did these things come from, is telling us that he, he's taking credit for all of this. God is intent upon giving us the truth, and the truth is that we are, in and of ourselves, utterly insignificant, <coughs> and certainly in no place to question him and his ways. Isaiah 55, verses 7 through 11, <coughs> give us the, the truth of the matter. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down, 
and snow from heaven and returns not there, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So my word will, so will my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It will not return to me void, but will accomplish that whereinto which I please and shall prosper in the thing whereinto I send it. <clears throat> and then Romans 9 verses 18 through 21. Therefore he has mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardens. You will say to me, uh, why does he find fault? For who has resisted his will? You know, if God's doing it all, he's doing it all, why does he tell us to forsake unrighteousness when he's causing us to be unrighteous? Well, here's the answer to that question. You, you will say to me, why does he find fault for who has resisted his will? Here's the answer. Nay, but, O oh man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me this way? Has not the potter the power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? I used to read that verse and think, Well, I'm sure glad that God has made me a vessel of honor and, and not one of these poor souls over here who is a, obviously a vessel of dishonor. But that's not what's being said there at all. We're all first vessels of dishonor. And in that same lump, Lord willing, he makes a new man. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The same lump of clay, but a new person in it. And God has to do that to every one of us. The truth is that the potter has power over the clay. And he can and does make it first a vessel of dishonor before he makes it a new vessel. Right? Jeremiah 18.4 gives us that principle. The vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Not of its own free will. He made it that way. So he made it again. Another vessel that seemed good to the potter to make it. Now Job is now becoming aware of just how childish are the words he uttered so boldly in his carnal frustration with God and his ways. In Jeremiah and Job, and Job 23. Verse 2 through 6, I'm going to re repeat them here. Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, and that I might come even to a seat. I would order my cause before him, and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me, and understand what he would say to me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, he would put strength in me. To go ahead and argue with him. Fill my mouth up. And yeah, sure. As Job is learning the difference between wanting to fill my mouth with arguments even at his seat and actually being at his seat is this. Now, I compare this with what we just read there in Job 23. This is Job 40 where Job is actually given that opportunity. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the, he that contends with the Almighty instruct the Almighty? He that reproves God, let him answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I say to you? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. That's the difference right there. That's the difference between what we think we would do if we could talk with God and what actually happens. 
When we're in God's presence, we realize just how great he is and how insignificant we are. But God hasn't asked Job those questions yet. We're just in chapter 38, and that's in chapter 40. And Job, of course, is a type and shadow of who we are, and at this point he's still instructing us with his humbling questions. Verse 36 and 37. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds in wisdom? Who can stay the bottles of heaven? Now those are contrasting uh, points there. God puts wisdom in the inward, inward parts, and uh, God gives understanding to the heart. <clears throat> he can number the clouds in wisdom, and he can stay the bottles of heaven. Stay in the bottles of heaven is the opposite of all that other stuff there. I mean, it, it, it takes away the wisdom and, and takes away the understanding of the heart and takes away being a cloud in God's service. The truth is that Christ must dwell within us before any of us are given wisdom in the inward parts. It requires the mind of Christ in us to be given understanding of the heart. It also takes Christ being within us to even understand the question, who can number the clouds in wisdom? I mean, most people don't have a clue what God is even asking Job there. Thank you. Oh, got to count the clouds. And that's not what he's even getting at. So it takes the mind of Christ within the body of Christ to stay the bottles of heaven and cause it to uh, not to rain upon the earth. Staying the bottles of heaven is just as much a function of God's clouds with which he judges the people, and that's a quote, as the sending of rain to cause the bud of the tender herb, herb to uh, spring forth. It's he who is working all things after the counsel of his own will. Now here's how the bottles of heaven were stayed by Elijah. Let, let's just get a feel for what is actually being said. 1 Kings 17 verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, this is the king of the northern kingdom, who had married the... Uh, the daughter of a pagan named Jezebel. He says, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. James puts it this way, telling the same story. Elias, that's the Greek way of saying Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly, that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Now, you know, this this is, Elijah is a type of you and me as God's two witnesses. That's, that's who he is, and he was the one who caused it not to rain. He prayed for that to happen, and it didn't happen. I mean, it happened. It happened that it didn't rain. It didn't rain. Now, here's how the bottles of heaven are stayed in the New Testament. This is this is how this is accomplished in you and me. And of course, we don't have any regard for or appreciation for the words that come before this. The verse I'm about to read is going to be worthless. But here's how it's done. Matthew 18, verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on, the, uh, on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, a better translation reveals that it was already done in heaven, and that all we're doing is repeating the words of God to those that we uh, shut up the bottles of heaven, the bottles uh, of the clouds from. But here's, 
Here's what it says in a better translation. Truly I say unto you, however many things you may bind on earth will be things that are bound in heaven. And however many things you may loose on earth will be things that are loosed in heaven. In other words, all we can do is to bring out what the word of God, which reveals what the heavens are, to others. We can bring them out. But we've got to know when to answer a fool according to his folly and when not to answer a fool according to, to his folly. We've got to know when to witness for Christ and when not to cast our pearls before swine lest they turn again and rend us. And that is a, a, a gift from the Holy Spirit. So when the Lord asks us, as he asked Job in verses 25 through 27, who has divided a water course for the overflowing of waters or a way for the lightning of the thunder to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is or in the wilderness where there is no man to satisfy the desolate and waste ground and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth, we know that the Lord can, can cause it to rain on earth. Only the Lord can cause it to rain on earth. And when the Lord asks us who can stay the bottles of heaven, we know that this too is only done by him, and by his word, which we must live. So when the bottles of heaven are stayed by God's word, we can know very dry times in our lives, and our hearts become hardened against God and his word. And we all live through it. We all endure that. We know what it's like to go through that. Or if we don't, we will. Verse 38, when the dust grows into hardness, and the clods cleave together, cleave fast together. Now, these are the days of spiritual famine in our lives, which are symbolized by a drought of God's word and the understanding of his word in our lives. Now here's how God expresses what happens when the bottles of heavens are, st are stayed. Amos 8, verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will send a famine in the land. A famine comes with drought. Uh, not... A famine of bread, or a thirst for water, physically, but a hearing of the word of the Lord, because that's spiritual water and food. You know, eat this bread, drink this wine. Uh, whoever believes on me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This is what God is speaking about. This is a necessary famine, which must precede the day when the famine is broken. Uh, the pouring out of the words of life which come to us only after we're starved uh, to death for those words. And our old man has been put to death and destroyed by the, the famine that comes upon us. Of course, that famine is nothing more than false prophets and false doctrines which have been brought to us and have brought, been brought to us for the point of bringing us to that point. Uh, in the New Testament... We have the story of the prodigal son who took God's truth, his inheritance, and went out and squandered it, which is just another way of saying that he went out and wrapped it up in his, his idols instead of being faithful to the word of God. But he squandered it, and it says a severe famine came on. I don't have this here in the notes, but it, it just came to me while I was thinking about it, and I wanted to throw it in here. A severe famine came on him. And he ended up eating with the hogs and eating the husks with the hogs. And it was very unnourishing. And he knew what he had come to see through that famine, through that experience, 
how far from God he had gone. And of course, you know the story. He went back and asked his father for forgiveness. And of course, the father was more than willing, ran to meet him and received him back into his fellowship. Now let's read about this story of Elijah. And Elijah the Tishbite was an inhabitant of Gil- who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, whom, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And then 1 Kings 18, verse 1, It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in, in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, and there was sore famine in Samaria. Samaria is the capital of northern Israel. It was the Lord who told Elijah when this drought would start. It was God who told Elijah when the drought would come to an end. It is also God who reveals to us that this time of famine causes all the false doctrines and the false prophets who have been occupying our land to be exposed for who and what they are. Now that's that's the purpose for this. It, it brings us to the point that we can distinguish good from evil and a, and a heretic from someone who's really serving God, who's taking the hard path instead of saying, let's go the easy path, let's be popular and get along with our friends. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Let's see what happens here. See what this famine brings about. First Kings 18, we're going to continue here in verse 17. It came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Now Ahab is the world, the church world. It says to him, Are you he that troubles Israel? Yeah, yeah. Those who follow Christ are going to be the ones who are blamed with causing the trouble and causing the division in the family and turning against friends and, and, and causing all the trouble because they're following in Christ's footsteps. And he answered and said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandment of the Lord and have followed Balaam. The people who are following the world, doing everything the world does, are going to accuse you of being the troublemaker because you don't follow the world. Don't go with them to the same excess of riot. Following in the traditions of men and doing all that is so easy to do, that, that just fits in with everything. When you, when you don't do that, you're just the troublemaker. You trouble Israel. Now therefore sending, this is Elijah talking to Ahab, let's, let's, let's settle this thing. Let's get this settled. Now therefore send and gather me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. Let's get everybody together. All those that are supported by the entire Christian world, you know, Jezebel, that's what Jezebel is. Read the second and third chapter of, uh, of I'm talking about right in the church. Read the second and third chapter of Revelation if you have any doubt about that. The church has allowed that woman Jezebel to teach and to seduce my people to offer sacrifices to idols. And that's exactly what the whole of Christian religion does in its everyday life by just following the, the idols of, uh, of Jezebel. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal be God, but if Baal, then follow him. 
And all the people answered him, not a word. Yeah, so. Then said Elijah to the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. That, that, that's the way you feel. Actually, they were, God told him there were 7,000 men who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And there were a 100 prophets that we know of who were kept by Ahab's own steward of all people in a cave. Ahab didn't know it, but that's what happened. Otherwise, Jezebel would have, would have wiped them all out. But Elijah doesn't know about that yet. He's, he's, he thinks he's the only one, and that's the way we all feel. I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks. Let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put fire under it, and I will dress the other bullock, and uh, lay it, he said, put no fire under it, thank you. Lay it on the wood, but don't put any fire under it. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. And call you on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it's well spoken. Yeah, let's see this show. That's what they were saying, because they don't have a heart for serving God. They just wanted to see a show. And they were given to see a show. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullet for yourselves, and dress it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under it. And they took the bullet which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. Now mind you, this would never have happened if there had not been a severe famine. At Elijah's word. At Elijah's word. And mind you that that severe famine is a lack of the truth being held back from those who need it so desperately. And it came to pass at noon, lunchtime, that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry out, for he is a god. Either, either he is taking... Either he is talking, or he's pursuing, or he's on a journey, or a peradventure. He sleeps, and must be awaked. And they cried aloud, and cut themselves after their manner, with knives and lancets, till the blood gushed out upon them. <coughs> and it came to pass, when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, and there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was broken down. Now that, that we read over that, and we, we just don't catch it. He had to repair the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Why was, it, why was the altar of the Lord broken down? Because it had been so neglected. Listen, I have said it a thousand times. The altar is the cross. And we tear down the altar of the Lord by thinking that we can just fit in with the world and everything will be rosy and, and we'll be happy. We've heard so much uh, prosperity evangelism and we want it so bad we don't know what rejoicing in tribulation means. We don't want to hear of it. It's not anything to rejoice over to our old man and we're still struggling with that we're struggling against our old man 
We want a little relief, and we want it now. That's what Job is all about. Lord, this has gone too far. This is completely out of hand. Let's, let's, let's get this over with. Either kill me or, or give me some relief here. And we're, we're ordering God around. Well, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. As long as you order God around, you're going to be receiving more of the same. So you have to repair the altar of the Lord before anything is going to be accomplished. Job does that in type and shadow by saying, I'll put my hand on my mouth. He actually comes to the point that he realizes that God can continue continue to afflict him as long as he wants. And he will until you shut up. And that's what he tells us to do right there at the Red Sea. I'll do the delivering and you're going to hold your peace. We have to come to that point. And we have to realize that the reproach of the cross is ours to bear. It's not someone else. Until we come to see that, until we come to thank God for the opportunity to be bearing that cross and rejoice in the opportunity to be that, bear the cross and not put off the reproach of Christ on someone else, we will not have a repaired altar because the altar is the cross. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be my name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And he did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The process of judgment. And the water ran down. I mean, that's what the number three is for, for those of you who I may not be aware of that. And the water ran down upon, about the altar. And he filled the trench with water. And it came to pass... At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said to the Lord God of Abraham, and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. You and I are going to have this very experience, Lord willing, and are having it. We're having it today in the eyes of those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. We will have it literally physically in time to come. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. You know, when God does do something, he does it so thoroughly. And all of that, all of that right there, is something we experience inwardly first. He burns up everything that is there that can be burned up in our lives, on our altar. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, You and I fall on our faces and say, Lord, He is God. Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, 
Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. These are our false doctrines in our lives. That's what these prophets are. Let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. We have to destroy the giants in our land and the false prophets in our lives. We don't go to bed with them. We don't make deals with them. We don't work with them. We destroy them. The death of all of our false prophets will be at the hearing of the truth when the truth soaks in, which will always drive out the darkness of all the lies of those false prophets. There's no room to work with them. They can't be tolerated. And here's how we slay the false prophets of Baal today. John, 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. Whether they're... Elijah put these prophets on trial. And they, <laughs> they failed. Try the spirits and destroy them. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. But it's clear that the ability to try spirits to see whether they're of God... And our deliverance from the prophets of Baal comes to us only after we've experienced a time of great drought. It causes us to cry out to God for relief from the drought and the famine. It wouldn't have happened without the drought. And if we don't understand that everything that we read about is within us, Elijah, Ahab, the prophets of Baal, and the fire of the Lord, all within us, then we, we don't get anything out of this. It, we, we parcel it out, all the bad stuff to others, and keep the good stuff to ourselves. That's what we do just naturally in reading the Word of God, and that's not how it's to be read. All things are ours. The world, life, death, and the fire of God, all of it is ours. Psalms 107, verse 2 through 6, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those who have already endured the fiery trials, let them say so. Those upon whom judgment is now, let them say so. Whom he has redeemed from the land of, from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands of the from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. They wandered in wilderness in a solitary way. They, these are God's redeemed. They were in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. All of those of you who are on this prayer list, keep these words in mind. King David is the same, in the same psalm here, Psalms, Psalm 107, reiterates the fact that it's God himself who both stays the bottles of heaven and sends his clouds to drop and distill upon man abundantly. Let me read a couple verses out of Job before we get to that. Which clouds do drop and distill upon man abundantly? Job 36, verse 28. Uh, that's, that's Elihu talking. And then right here in the same chapter, God asked Job, Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that abundant waters may cover you? Of course, Job couldn't do that. Didn't have Christ in him. Now let's get on down to Psalms 107. A little further down, he turns the rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into dry ground. He holds the bottles of uh, heaven. A fruitful land into barrenness, and, and uh, for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. But look what else he does. He turns the wilderness 
into standing water and dry ground into water springs. That's, that's what's coming. That's what's coming. We can do none of these things of ourselves. We cannot cause a famine, nor can we fill the appetite of the young lions. This, too, is a work that only the Lord can accomplish. So verse 39 and 40. Will you hunt the prey for the lion, or fill the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and abide in the covert to lie in wait? Well, we, we know who lies in wait. God sends, God sends Satan to lie in wait for us. He does it through people. Yes, oh yes, there are those who right this moment watch this program so they can lie in wait and find something to uh, condemn. And uh, that's that's the work of the Lord. They think that it's their work. You know, they feel very smug about what they do, but all of our actions are actually a work of the Lord, working His uh, purpose in our lives. And uh, when we are when we are Jacob's brother selling him into Egypt, we think it's our idea. We think that we are so crafty, lying in wait for our brother. And the fact is that those who have time to do that have that time because the Lord sent them to do it. When they crouch in their dens and abide in the covert to lie in wait. The fact that God asks this question of us shows that he doesn't deny that the famine of Elijah, and all famines, physical and spiritual, are his work. And that's, that it's he who feeds the young lions who devour all that they're given to devour. What the Lord is telling us is that he gives the adversary the flesh of the prey for the lion. Peter puts it this way. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Now, to drive home the fact that his sovereignty extends over all evil, our Lord asks... Who provides for the raven his food? Verse 41. When his young ones cry unto God, they wander for lack of meat. Uh, we know that a raven's an unclean bird. That's in Leviticus 11. These are they which shall have the abomination among the fowl. They uh, shall not be eaten. They're an abomination. The eagle, the os- osophage, the osprey, and the vulture, and the kite after his kind. Every raven after his kind. Now ravens are crows, you know, they're just big crows. And they're famous for eating seed as soon as it's sown. Uh, Here's Christ's own words concerning the fowl who devour his people as soon as they hear his word. Matthew 13, verse 3 and 4. He spake unto them in parables, saying, The sower went forth to sow, and and when he had sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Now Christ explains what he means by this parable. Hear the word of the parable. Uh, hear therefore the parable of the sower. When one hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is that which was received away, received seed by the wayside. The means by which the fowls of the heaven devour them up is the same as it was in the Garden of Eden. The fowls of the heaven are the wicked one who twists the word of God into words he knows will appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life within our flesh. So the way the seed of the word is devoured up is by replacing the truth with lies, twisting the truth, which appeal to our flesh and our pride. And what God is telling us through Job is that the law of sin is in our members, which law he placed there and provides the food for the raven. 
Now here's the meaning of Job 31 in the New Testament. Uh, Job 38 verse 41 in the New Testament. It's verses 17 through 23 of Romans 7. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. That's a law. For I delight in the law of God, after the inward man, but I see another law in my members. Now this is Paul, and this is you and me. We delight in God's law after the inward man. But uh, we don't delight after the law of God in our flesh. So we've got to be aware that we have that struggle on a daily basis. Our flesh is still there. We need to contend with it. I see another law in my members, warn against the law of my mind, and bring me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. The law of sin in my members is not the work of the wicked one. Well, it is. It is, but only because God sends it to be such. God wants Job and he wants us to know that. So he gives us the law of sin in our members. Gives it to us. Here's what the scriptures tell us from Genesis to Revelation. Proverbs 16. Verse uh, 4. The Lord has made all things for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of evil. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do these things. The Lord, why have you made us to err from your ways? This is Isaiah 63, verse 17. Why have you made us to err from your ways and harden our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake the tribe of your inheritance. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you that judges another? That's James 4, verse 12. It's all of God. It's, it's nothing of ourselves. If we're not even to judge our brothers in Adam, who are we to judge our maker? Romans 9, 20. Nay, but, O man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me this way? So the, so, so the death and destruction of our old man, our old Job, it's a predestined certainty. But it's all for a very good end, as the Apostle Paul reveals. Romans 7, verse 24, same chapter where he explains this law of sin in our memories. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And we are not... As he says in verse 14 of the previous chapter, we're now no longer subject to to the uh, law of sin. Uh, it, it, we've been given dominion over sin in our lives. So all of Job's suffering merely typifies the suffering which all men must endure for the sake of the death and destruction of the old man. And through the death, getting us to the predestined end product of what God is working in the life of every man who's ever lived.
1 Corinthians 15.22 says it. For as an Adam all die, even so in Christ will all be made alive. Philippians 4.12 and 13. I know how to be blessed and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And now that is the truth. And anything that tells you otherwise is a lie. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. We can overcome sin in our lives. And we can have that dominion and that peace of mind that comes with it. Colossians 1.22 In the body of his flesh, you and me, we are the body of his flesh, as we'll read here in a minute, through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Hebrews 12.14 For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And then here's the verse that we just referred to. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. This 30th verse of Ephesians 5 does not say we are members of a spiritual body, although that is true, of course. What it does say is we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Just as he presented himself in different forms of flesh and bone after his resurrection. Mark 16, verse 12, comes out and says it. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. Christ appeared in different forms to let us know that he is in his body today. So this is what our Lord is telling Job, and through Job he's telling us. It is through filling the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and abide in the covert to lie in wait, and by providing for the raven his food and when his young ones cry unto God, that we too, as his flesh and his bone, must die daily, must be crucified with him, must present our bodies a living sacrifice, must be buried with him in baptism into death, must endure the famine that we read about. Through that, all through all of that, that like as Christ was delivered up to die and was then raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Romans 6, verses 4 through 6, uh, 3 through 6. Know you not that as many of us as were baptized in Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, therefore were buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Our old man, that's what Job is until right at the end of the book. In type and shadow. That the body of sin might be destroyed. So this idea that you can come to God just as you are and stay that way is a lie. We come to God just as we are, but we overcome sin. We don't live in it. The old man has to be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now that's just the message of God's word. In God's own time, Job, and we through Job, will learn that the cross of Christ is the good news, as Brother Abe pointed out, of the kingdom of God within us. 
the kingdom of God suffers violence. That's just what the scriptures say. We will come to rejoice in the fact that our sufferings are filling up in our bodies, what is behind of the afflictions of Christ, knowing that just like Christ, our afflictions are also for his body's sake, which is the church. And we'll be happy to endure those sufferings, knowing that the tender mercy they they hold in store for us. Colossians one twenty four. Here it is, just as plain as it can be stated. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. You say, I don't see how my afflictions are in any way helping the church. Well, they are. They are. James 5.11 Behold, we count them happy. Why are they happy? They endure. They endure to the end. Endure doesn't mean relish or revel. It means you endure affliction. <clears throat> you revel, revel and you relish in good, easy times. Not affliction, not tribulations. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that he is very pitiful and of tender mercy. That's the end of the Lord. He has no pity on our old man. That should be seen through the story of Job. Our afflictions are offered as an as a living sacrifice, as the scapegoat of Leviticus 16, and our sufferings are just as much for his body's sake, and I'm talking about our sufferings. Our sufferings are as much for his body's sake as Christ's were. Now let's look at it. It just tells us that in Leviticus 16, if we understand what the scapegoat is, that we are that scapegoat. Leviticus 16, verse 8. Aaron shall cast lots upon two goats, one for the Lord, and the other for the scapegoat. <clears throat> And Aaron will bring the goat which is upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. Christ literally was hung on the cross physically for our sins. But the goat on which the lot fell to be a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him. The atonement is with the scapegoat as well, is what is being said here. And he's a, he is offered with the Lord's goat. They, the two of them are offered. But the atonement is also made with the scapegoat to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now that's just what the scriptures say. And here's how that is fulfilled in the New Testament. Romans 12.1 I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a scapegoat, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The patience of Job is for a very good and worthy purpose. James 1, verses 2 through 3. Brethren, count it all joy. Be happy when you endure. Count it all joy when you fall into different temptations, knowing that this Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, but let patience have her perfect work. Now here's what patience accomplishes. Here's what enduring accomplishes. That you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You know, that doesn't mean anything to us until it means something to us. And then we really want to be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. 
What God is telling us through Job's experience is that he has placed the stars in the heavens. He sends clouds to rain upon the earth. He sends times of plenty. He sends times of famine. He feeds both the good and the evil. He sends his rain upon both the, the evil and the good. And he creates both the good and the evil. And he does it all for a generation to come. Now that's a scripture that was brought out to me this past week. We'll be reading here in a minute. And he does it for our sake to bring us to himself. Where in his time there will never again be any need for pain or tears. Now here's that verse that was uh, my friend Danny Anderson brought to my attention this past week. It's been there of course all along. But it's just interesting to have it. To see it in the context here that we see it. And, and, and realize that, wow, yeah, that does say that. Psalm 102, verse 18. This shall be written for the generation to come. And for the people that shall be created. Or I should say, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. Now, that, that includes Psalms 107, you know. It's, it's, it's all written for a generation to come. Psalms 107 is the one that tells us what the wonderful works of God in our lives are that we're supposed to rejoice in and thank him for. And of course, again, it is the death of our old man and all that's entailed there. Romans 18 verse uh, Romans 8 verse 18 says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. 1 Corinthians 3 verse uh, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 21 and 22. Therefore, let no man glory in men. Now here it is. This, this is what this is the truth. For all things are yours. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's going to let us know. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and that means Peter, or the world. The world is full of sin. The world is full of pain. The world is full of, oh yes, it's a beautiful world. And it's a dying world. Every beautiful thing you see out there, whether it's a landscape or a beautiful flower or a beautiful animal, it's all dying. All of it is dying. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. So don't let anyone tell you that you're going to be raptured out of it. It's a lie. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15, For all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace may, through the thanksgiving of many, redound unto the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish day by day, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, while we don't, well, either we do or we don't, but at things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, as I was just saying. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Lord willing, you and I are that generation to come to which King David refers. And which Peter writes in these words. Now here it is in the New Testament. Receiving the end of your faith. This is 1 Peter 1 verses 9 through 13. Even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they did minister the things which are now reported to you by them which have preached the gospel to you 
with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought to us at the revelation, brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that verse, those verses, 9 through 13 there, they're just, the world cannot see them. They just don't have eyes to see and understand what has been said there, that all the things of the Old Testament are not being written for the people who lived them out. They were actually lived out and endured for our sakes. Now just think about that when you hear about the the, the fiery furnace and the, the lion's den and and all the trials that the prophets of God were put through and how they were killed by the people of Israel. It was all for your sake, for my sake. Revelation 21 tells us what our reward is when, when we are given the patience of Job and we're granted to endure to the end. Verses 3 through 5. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Right, for these, things, these words are true and faithful. So we will be hated of all men for his name's sake, but he that endures to the end will be saved. That's Matthew 10, 22. And James 5, 11 says, again, I'm repeating this, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard of the patience of Job, and you've seen the end of the Lord, that he is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And in our next study, we're going to continue to reason with the Lord concerning his sovereign work within, uh, even with all that evil that is in the world, and how we uh, will be brought through it. Now, here's how he will 